Okay, next, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm calling this section a priestly benediction. A priestly benediction. Why might I call it that? What, what would make me think, chapter 1, verse 2, what would remind me of a benediction or priesthood or, or anything like that from chapter 1, verse 2? Is there any Old Testament text that might come to mind? Yeah, look, at, uh, look at number 6. 23 through 26. So this is the Aaronic blessing. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. He shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Do you see it? Be gracious to you and give you peace. Grace and peace, right? And the Aaronic blessing was to be given over the people in response to the sacrifice, right? So Paul is taking up kind of that priestly duty and transforming the ironic blessing, I think, into a new covenant context so that grace and peace come to the covenant community on behalf of the sacrifice of Jesus, right? So, and, and this was, it was to bring the effects of the sacrifice to the people. They would experience the blessing of God, the nearness of God, the grace and peace from God. So the marker of the New Testament people of God is not God's graciousness and God's peace to them in general, or God's graciousness and God's peace to them because of a sacrifice, but God's graciousness and God's peace because of Jesus Christ. So the greatest evidence of Christianity is that we've experienced grace and peace. Now here's what's interesting, though. Okay. Who is he saying this to? Is he saying this to Christians or non-Christians? Christians. Right? He's not praying that non-believers would experience grace from God and peace from God. He's praying that Christians would experience grace from God and peace from God. It's the first thing he says. I think it's because Paul knows that the greatest thing that every person needs, Christian or non-Christian, the greatest thing they need is grace from God and peace from God through Jesus. We need a continuing experiences of the benefit of the death of Christ continued experiences of the benefits of the death of Christ. We need ongoing grace. We need ongoing peace. Right? So how, how does that affect the way we preach? How does that affect the way we think about the people we minister to? What they need is not... Yeah, yeah. They don't need scolding. Right? If... If, if we want to see more progress in people's sanctification in our homes, in our families, in our churches, the answer is not scolding. The answer is not law. The answer is not more demands. The answer is God give them the grace and give them the peace. Right? The peace, though, so grace is, grace is kind of easy, easy, more easy to understand than peace, right? Grace is grace in saving us, grace in changing us. Grace, I think, is in, even in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, grace is a, a power. It's a resurrecting power. It's a power that pulls us from the dead and brings us to life. And so I think here we can say grace is a power, a power that transforms dead people to alive people and disobedient people to obedient people. But what about peace? It's a fruit of the Spirit, for sure. Why not? Yeah. What, why do you think Paul, though, would say, of, of all things, why peace? Yeah. Unity. Yes, I think so. In, in the context of Ephesians, I think we can say the peace is both between us and God and us with one another. 
he's praying for ongoing experiences, especially of horizontal peace. Right? Are we at peace with God? Yes, we are. But he doesn't pray for fresh experiences of that peace with God. And he does pray for fresh experiences of peace with one another. Yeah. Could we also say peace is like a greeting? It's like your salam or Jesus, like peace be to you. Yeah, like so. He does, yeah, and uh, Paul is actually transforming a, with saying charis, with saying grace, he's transforming a cultural phrase, and um, yeah, shalom would be the Jewish or Hebrew background to that, right? Um, but I think he's taking even secular expressions and transforming them, and he's using grace and peace to allude to the number six text, I think. But I think what we need to know here also is when you think of peace, what do you think of? Rest. Rest, good. What comes to mind when we think of peace? End of war, yeah, good. What else? I think what most people think of is the absence of conflict, right? Peace is the absence of conflict. You know, you know you experience peace when conflict has been removed, right? But if we understand the, the Hebrew, the Jewish idea of shalom, it was much different than that. Shalom ha- comes with the idea of flourishing. That's probably a, better, a good translation of shalom is flourishing. Peace or flourishing, shalom is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of blessing, the presence of prosperity. It's, uh, it's, it's everything reaching its full potential in every relationship, basically. So your, your marriage reaching its full potential, your school, your business, all of it reaching its full potential. And which I think has significance in, the, in our expectations for how the death of Christ is meant to invade our reality. Right? Paul's not a health and wealth preacher, but he does expect certain physical realities to come about because we're part of the new creation. He expects Christians of all people to have relationships that flourish. Because Jesus has died to create peace and reconciliation and flourishing in our relationships with one another. But it all comes from Christ. It all comes from God. Do you see that? Grace and peace from God. More than anything, what these people need is God. They need the grace that comes from God, the peace that comes from God, not from themselves, but God. And do you see what God is called here? Our Father. He's called our Father. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. He's called the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, certainly. But the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has become our Father through the death of Jesus. It it communicates relationship, right? Nearness. God doesn't stand from a distance throwing grace and peace at us. He's near. He's fatherly. And I think there's covenant ideas here, right? Why would I say that? Does fatherhood carry with it any kind of covenant ideas? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, David, Israel too, right? Adam was called the son of God. All these covenant partners, um, there was a father-son relationship between God and them. And so now we, as members of the new covenant, express, experience the fatherhood of God, right? Good. Yeah, it gets to verse 3. Good, so let's go ahead and start chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. We're not going to finish it today, 
let's go ahead and make a, a good, solid effort. Sound good? Um, let's, let's read this section. And I, I want you to ask, uh, let's just read it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the, to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now this is a difficult passage, right? It's difficult for a few reasons. It's, it is some of the most dense theology in all of Paul. And Paul moves from one theological topic to the next to the next very, very rapidly, right? It's difficult because of the theology of it, but it's also difficult because of the structure. It's a very difficult structure to discern exactly what Paul is doing. So I want you to turn to the person next to you and ask, if you were to divide this up, this section, if you were to outline it, how would you do it? How would you divide up this section? Go ahead and talk about that together. Yeah, from 3 to 14. How would you divide it up? You think it can't be divided? That's fine. If that's your answer, that's fine. Just what's the structure? Like, what's the structure of what he's saying is the question. Or is there structure? Like, maybe, maybe you just say, like, hey, there's no structure. It's just a one-sentence there's not really a structure. He just kind of starts and then Michael Scott, sometimes I begin a sentence without knowing where I'm going. Maybe that's what he's doing. Okay, is there anything in the text that might lead you to understanding what is, what is Paul doing here? Let's start, with, let's start with this question. What's the relationship between verse 3 and the rest of the sentence? Right, so... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Christ and with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so verse 3 kind of serves as a heading. Okay, so if you stop reading at verse 3, he's blessed us with every blessing, then you have a great prosperity gospel sermon, and everyone can go home. Until you, until you ask, where does Paul mention anything about physical prosperity in the following section. Not once. All of the blessings have to do with election, redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, things like that, right? So verses 4 through 14 all tell us what the blessings are. Okay, so we have a heading verse, and the rest of, them kind of, the, rest of the verses kind of spell out what he means by that. But even then, how would we divide, is there a way to divide up his line of thought? Yeah, Sammy. Mm -hmm. Verse 3 through verse, so then starting in verse 9 is a new section? 8, 9, and 10. Yeah, 8, 9, and 10 yeah, seem to be its own section, I think. But it's not as clear at first. Yeah, you're getting onto something, though. Yeah, Emmanuel. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. And it ends with to the praise of his glorious grace, right? That's mentioned three times. To the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think I think we could even divide it Father, Son, and Holy Spirit too, right? Because the Father is the main actor. In verses 4 and 5. The Son is the main actor in verses 6 through 12. And the Spirit is the main actor in verses 13 and 14. 
And to the praise of his glory ends each section, right? Now here's an idea. Okay, I'll ask you this question. How many times does Paul talk about predestination in this section? How many times does he talk about predestination? Two times. Isn't that weird? Why does he talk about predestination twice? Like that? Wouldn't it make sense if he talked about predestination at the beginning and then he got he was done with it. But instead, starting in verse 11, he talks about predestination a second time. Like, if he's just going to list all of these blessings, why does he talk about predestination twice? Any ideas? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But why, why would he specifically say predestined twice? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, sure, yeah. But still, he's mentioning predestination two times. I mean, there's, there's different destinations. Okay, here's an idea. Wait, let's, let's see. Yeah, I'll, I'll, sh I'll just go ahead and show my cards. I think it's possible that this is what Paul is doing. I think there's a chiasm. Okay. So... <laughs> So I think in verse 3, he talks about uh, the spiritual blessings. The, they're not spiritual as opposed to material. They're, they're blessings from the Spirit. It's even more clear in the original. It's, he's not saying there's physical blessings and there's spiritual blessings. He's saying there's blessings that come from the Spirit. And I think that that's in line with the sealing of the promised Holy Spirit at the end. So he starts with the Holy Spirit and he ends with the Holy Spirit. But then it becomes even more interesting in the next section. It talks about being chosen and being predestined for the purpose of his will, which Paul says that, again, the purpose of his will. He, he mentions predestination and the purpose of his will twice. And then he ends both of those sections with to the praise of his glory. Which makes the center of this section the redemption through Jesus. Which I'm arguing is the central message of the entire book, right? Especially verses 9 and 10, which is where it climaxes. Jesus is at the very center of the chiasm, and he's also at the very center of the redemption plan and the purposes that God is accomplishing for the universe, right? He's at the center of the text as well. I think that's significant that Paul is making Jesus the center of the chiasm, pushing forth the the redemption that happens through the Son, and, and holding it out kind of as um, the most significant of the section. But it's, it's, it's also difficult. Yeah, is there a question there? Yeah. Why is it a chiasm? Uh, that's a good question. Remember, this is not a theolo theological essay. Okay. Paul is not writing a theological essay. I think that this is a worship. This is not, Paul is not intending even to write about controversial theology. We're talking about predestined. I mean, when Paul, when Paul's writing this letter, he hits us right off the bat with being chosen and being predestined. Like some of those controversial theolo theological topics you could ever <laughs> touch on. He hits it right off the bat, but he doesn't spend much time there. Because this is not about, this is not a theological essay, it's a worshipful celebration of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Okay? That's essential for us to understand. It's, it's to celebrate. It's not systematic theology. I would, it's worship theology, one, but it's also narratival theology. What do I mean by narratival theology? It's, he's telling the story of Israel, I think, in this section. I think he's telling the story of Israel in, in verses 3 through 14. Because he starts with being chosen. He moves on to adoption as sons. He mentions the beloved one. And he ends with us receiving an inheritance. Right? 
I think he's telling the Israel story and saying that our conversion story is a reflection of the Israel story. So in some senses, I think we shouldn't be so caught up with it, uh, with how to structure this because of that. But also, we need, to, we need to realize that as Paul is writing this lengthy section, um, why is it one long sentence? I think it's one long sentence because, um, I mean, probably took a kiss is writing it down, or whoever is a man was, is writing it down as Paul is just kind of going. But if this is worship, this is a worshipful celebration, not a theological essay, it's almost like Paul is exploding with praise. And he just goes from one blessing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And so what I don't want is to artificially divide this up and we lose that rhetorical effect, that worshipful effect that Paul is trying to do. Paul is just praising God. He's praying. He's worshiping. Does that make sense? But I do think it's, I think there's a likely chiasm. And I think we need to keep the big picture in mind here. Okay? As we dive into the, the, all of the blessings, it's very easy to spend so much time doing a systematic theology of them that we forget that this is worship. This is not intended to be systematic theology. <coughs> it's intended to be worship. And it starts with, blessed be God, or praise be God, right? So the praise of His glory is mentioned three times in addition to that. It has its root in Jewish praise songs. Psalm 41, 14. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen. Right? I think of Melchizedek also. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies out of your hand. Psalm 72, 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous deeds. It's significant then that Paul is starting his letter this way because, one, it's worship, but two, he's locating his recipients within the same story as the Israelite story. He's worshiping God in a very Jewish way. And that's to communicate that the culmination of God's redemptive historical acts among his people happens in Jesus Christ. Paul praises the Gentile, Paul praises God, he has placed the Gentiles within the Bible story. And if he's done that, he is worshiping God for his act of covenant faithfulness to Gentiles. God has been covenantly faithful to Gentiles, and he worships him in response to that. In the same way that the worship songs in the Psalms were. God acted in covenant faithfulness, and we bless him, we praise him in response to it. Let's think, what, what was the purpose of worship under the Old Covenant? What's the purpose of worship? Um, again, it wasn't to start theological debates, Right? We can have theological debates about what these terms mean all day long if we want to. However, that was not the purpose. It's not, and that's not what Paul is doing here. Worship under the Old Covenant did two things. One, it looked backwards. Okay? It looked backwards. Worship under the Old Covenant looked backwards to what God did, especially what God did in the Exodus story, right? It praised God for acts of covenant faithfulness in the past. And it helped remind the people to look back at what God had done. If you're being tempted towards distrusting God or thinking He's not faithful, all you have to do is look back at the Exodus event and you can know that God is faithful. But not only looked back, it looked forward too. It sustained the covenant people. Worship reminds us of what God has done, and it helps us maintain our faith in the midst of difficulties, right? Have you ever had that experience of doubting, and you go to church, and you sing the songs with everyone else, and all of a sudden, your soul is revived? All of a sudden, you find within yourself the strength to keep going. You thought that you couldn't keep going. You thought you couldn't go another day, and then you go to church, and you sing the hymns, you're reminded of the gospel, you're reminded of what God has done in Christ, and next thing you know, you, you have the strength to keep going, at least another week, right? It sustained God's people. We look back, He chose us, He predestined us, He adopted us, He redeemed us, He forgave us, and we look forward to the unification of heaven and earth themselves, and the Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance, right? It helps us to look forward. 
And recognizing this, the, the worship reality, helps us see that this rescue story is part of the big story of the Bible. It's not an in, our story is an individual story. Our story is a part of God acting in history to redeem His people for His glory. It, that means it's the fulfillment of the Israel story. Our story is the fulfillment of the Israel story. So there's, there's Old Testament language throughout, right? Adoption redemption, inheritance, election. The point then, if this is narratival theology and worship theology, and if it's looking back at the Israel story, the point is this. What God has done in Jesus is not separate from what God has done for Israel. God has one redemptive plan in history, and that's to unite all things under Jesus Christ. And he, he didn't do, he, we aren't plan B. We are the plan from the beginning. And the greatest redemptive act that God has done is not the exodus. The day has come when we no longer say the God who delivered his people out of the land of Egypt. The day has now come that we say the God who has delivered his people out of the land of trespasses and sins. So it's the fulfillment of the Israel story. But it's, it's also temple inauguration. Temple inauguration. Look at 2 Chronicles 5, 12 through 14. And compare it with Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduth, uh, those names are hard sometimes, aren't they? But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen. And their sons and their kinsmen arrayed with fine linens, with cymbals and harps and lyres, stood at the east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison and to praise with thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments, and a praise to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so the, the priests could not stand and minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house." And uh, comparing that to Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, we just saw the building of the temple at the end of chapter 2. And how does this section end? He bows his knee before God the Father. He prays that Christ would dwell in your heart through faith, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And now, and then we have a doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Right? So I think, I think that this section begins temple inauguration worship. God has come to rest, not on the temple that Solomon built. God has come to rest on the church. And so we praise God and we worship God because of it, and then we find that God's glory fills the temple, once again, at the end of chapter 3. Good, that is what Paul is doing, right? Ephesians 1 is not a theological essay. It is a worshipful celebration of what God has done in Christ. God has always been making promises from Genesis 3.15. Or we can even say from Genesis 2. He's been making promises, and he's finally, he's finally done what he said he was always going to do. And he's done it in the most unexpected way, through a crucified Messiah, who's been resurrected, and Paul is worshiping God in response to it. So, he expresses praise, right? Eulogitas. Eulogitas hatheos. Blessed be God. Praise be God. It's, this sets the tone, the theme of the worship, right? This is not a theological essay. It is worship. And the object of the praise. Who, who are the objects of the praise? God and, and Jesus, right? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is who is being praised. And He is the Father of Jesus Christ. God, the God of Jesus Christ. That's interesting language, right? We can think of the Father of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's easy. It was relational between the Trinity, right? What does it mean for God to be the God of Jesus Christ? Yeah, we could say that. Yeah, I mean, he worshipped him in the temple too, right? Like, 
He, I mean, he, he, clear, he was clearly Jesus' God. <laughs> like, Jesus wasn't following a different God. <laughs> so it could be just a statement of the fact that we follow the same God that Jesus followed. Could be that. The, when I say this, when I say the God of... The God of... What God? Abraham. The God of Isaac. The God of Jacob. The God of Israel. And now... That theme culminates in the God of Jesus Christ. It's covenant language, right? The God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, the God of Israel is the God of Jesus Christ. As our covenant head, He then is the one through whom all blessings flow to us. We are blessed in Him, our covenant head. The one who is the perfect covenant mediator where Abraham failed and where Moses failed and where Isaac failed and where Israel failed. Jesus stands and brings to us the covenant blessings that relationship with God is intended to bring. This is significant. He's the God of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our relationship to God is always first and foremost, covenantal. And it is only because of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, we have no relationship with God at all. It's only in Him and through Him that we have covenant membership and we have the blessings that He's going to worship God for. In, in that he's the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, you notice in verse 2, once again, the father of Jesus has become our father. The father who looked at his son and said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, is the father of us, the father of the church. Nearness between us and the God who blesses. That's what it's saying. If he's our father, he doesn't bless us with indifference. How does a father give a gift to his children? Not coldly. Not standing far off. And what's the reason he gives the gift? Not... Because he's obligated to. Because he loves. He's not reluctant in blessing us. Do you feel that? When we talk about election and adoption, do you feel sometimes as if God is reluctant to bless you? This combats that. The God who blesses is the Father. Not just the Father. He is our Father. There is no reluctance in Him blessing any of His children. He gladly does it. He gladly gives us these blessings. And the reason for the praise, the reason for the praise is that God is the divine initiator, the one who blesses. You see that God is the divine initiator. He is the one who acts, and we respond to his actions. God is the one who blesses us, verse 3. God is the one who chooses us, verse 4. God is the one who predestines us, verse 5. God is the one who graces us, verses 6 and 8. And God is the one who made known to us, verses 9 and 10. He's the initiator. He is the actor. We're the passive recipients. Like Saul on the road to Damascus, we too are knocked off of our donkeys and thrown to the ground as God comes into our lives and chooses to bless us. Not by our will, but by the will of God. As John says in John 1.14, not by the will of man, nor by the will of flesh, but we are called sons of God by the will of God. We were born not by our will, but by His will. And uh, what's, what's the description of these blessings? How are these blessings described? I think in, in three ways. How do we, how, Paul describes the blessings three in three ways. How does he describe them? Spiritual, that's one. In Christ, yeah, we can say that. In the heavenly places, yeah. Um, well, just in verse three. He's blessed us in Christ, that's the sphere of our blessing, and we'll get to that. But yeah, every spiritual blessing... And lastly, 
in the heavenly places. Exactly. That's exactly right. So he says spiritual blessing. Okay? He's not saying spiritual as opposed to physical. Okay? He's not, it's not a dualistic, you get spiritual immaterial blessings as opposed to physical blessings. That's not what he's saying. He's saying blessings from the Spirit. Uh, compare it to chapter 5, verse 19, where Paul uses the same phrase. Actually, let me, uh, our same uh, adjective. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Right? It's the panumati case. It's the same thing that he says in Ephesians 1.3. So the spiritual songs, I think, are songs, they're, they're impromptu, impromptu songs from the Spirit. The Spirit gives songs the songs from the Spirit. These are blessings from the Spirit. That's the emphasis. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives the blessing. Because the New Covenant age is characterized by blessings from the Spirit. It's, 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 it's the, uh, the Ezekiel 36:27. once again. I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. And I think he mentioned spiritual blessings because it forms the chiasm once again. I mentioned earlier. Second... It's comprehensive. Do you see that? Every spiritual blessing. All of them. He's not held back. There's not one spiritual blessing that God has not given to you if you are in Christ. Every member of the church has every spiritual blessing. No matter no matter how faithful or faithless they are, if they're in Christ, they have every spiritual blessing. It doesn't matter if they're studying to be a pastor or not. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Their performance doesn't matter. Their giftings don't matter. He's blessed us. He's the divine initiator. We are the passive recipients. And He has chosen to bless every member of His church with every spiritual blessing without exception. And without reluctance. He doesn't withhold some. Or he doesn't give some to members who are more faithful and, some, and withhold some from members who are less faithful. And on your best days, he doesn't give you more. On your worst days, he doesn't give you less. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, is what he's saying. The one who blessed us is an aorist participle. The one who blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It means it's a, we could say... We could, the, the action is seen as a completed action, not an ongoing action. Not the one who is blessing us, but the one who blessed us. We could say it has a past tense idea to it, but the action is seen as complete, is what's significant there. And where are these blessings? In the heavenly places. Okay. You might be disappointed there, right? Like, I'm sure, that's great. That's great, Paul. I get the heavenly blessing. But come on, I want my heavenly ATM card. Right? I want the blessing. This is not enough. Now, I think this does not, what this does not mean is that the blessings have no significance in our world. These are, these have huge significance in our daily lives. It just means that our experience of these blessings is the beginning of the unification of heaven and earth. We have been blessed with the heavenly places blessings. Heaven and earth have begun to unite in us through the blessings that God has blessed us with. Now, if you think about it like that, oh my goodness, there could be nothing more significant. But if they're in the heavenly places, that's similar to what Peter says, right? They're safe. They're secure. They're kept for us. The blessings that we experience on earth, moth and rust corrode and thief breaks in and steal, but no one can take your election. No one can take your adoption. No one can take your inheritance. No one can take your sealing with the Spirit. Nothing. Your best days, your worst days, whether you feel it or whether you don't, you are blessed with 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It doesn't matter whether you wake up and obey or disobey. It doesn't matter whether you wake up and you're aware of the blessings or not. It doesn't matter whether you are on a spiritual high or a spiritual drought. You have been blessed with every single spiritual blessing, and they're safe for you in the heavenly places. It doesn't matter if you feel it or not. And if we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, there's always a reason to worship. That's what Paul's doing, right? He's worshiping. There is always a reason to worship, even when everything is taken away from us, even in the midst of suffering, even when we're uncertain of our future, even when there's terrifying realities just a few hundred kilometers from here. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, no matter what. And no one can take them from us. This also combats the theology of second blessing, doesn't it? There are some people, here's your problem, brother. Here's your problem, sister. You need the second blessing. You got the first blessing. That's great. You need to be baptized in the Spirit. You need the second blessing. Then you can really start your spiritual journey. Then you can really be in communion with God. No. Every member of the church has received every blessing in the heavenly places. There's no second-class citizens. There's not some people who have more of the Holy Spirit and less of the Holy Spirit. There's not some people who are more chosen or more adopted or more reconciled. No, every member of the church has every spiritual blessing to the fullest possible extent because the love of the Father is equally for every member of the church. And what's the reason for the blessing? Not us. Christ. We are blessed through our covenant mediator. And this probably brings to mind Genesis 12.3. In you all nations of the world will be blessed, right? In Abraham. Blessed not because of personal merit, but blessed because of another. Only this blessing is not in Abraham. This blessing is in Christ. It's blessed, we are blessed in reference to Jesus and not in reference to ourselves. The rest of the chapter then seeks to unpack all of these spiritual blessing realities. But before we get there, I think we need, we need to ask a question. Okay, when we're looking at these spiritual blessings, let's compare it, okay, let's compare it to Romans chapter 8. Let's go ahead and just turn there instead of putting it on the screen. Look at Romans 8, verses 31 through the end of the chapter. Or let's say verses 26 through, the, through 30. I want you to compare what Paul says in Romans 8, 26 through 30, and what he says in Ephesians 1. Is he doing the same thing? Is he doing something different? Right. What's going on? There. So go ahead and read it and talk to your neighbor about that. Yeah, so Ephesians 1, 4 through 13. Compare it to Romans 8, 26 through 30. In both texts we have, I mean we could even say 28 through 30, right? In both texts we have a list of these things that God is doing. Is, it, is Paul saying the same thing in both of these lists? Or is he saying something different? Or is he doing something different? Do you, do you see what I'm at? Just reading the Romans text makes a little bit make a little bit of sense. What is he? What's he doing in Romans eight? Has he mentioned the same thing, like similar things? Someone read to me the the order in Romans eight. What does he say? Okay, so we got foreknowledge. And then foreknowledge comes before or after predestination. Yeah. Which leads to what? Uh huh. And those he predestined. 
called, okay. Right, so these, this is temporal, right? So God knows us in a covenantal way before the world begins, and that causes him to predestine us, which causes him to call us effectually, which causes him to justify us, which what? Glorify. Good. Is that what Paul's doing in Ephesians? Is Paul doing the same thing where he, he kind of looks at <clears throat> what's typically called the order, or, ordo salutis, the order of salvation, the order in which redemption is applied to people? Is that what Paul does here or no? I think no. And I think if you read it like that, you're going to have a hard time. Because does the sealing of the Spirit comes like later on in our lives or a present reality? And how is that in relationship to redemption? How is, that in, how is adoption and predestination related to one another, right? I, I, or how is forgiveness related to redemption? Like these are, it, it becomes confusing. I think it's more helpful to think of Ephesians like this. It's like a circle. The circle is... The circle is who? Who's the circle? Who's the circle of all circles? Very good, yeah. So Jesus, right? And flowing from Christ, the big, the big idea in Ephesians 1 is union with Christ. Flowing from Christ, we have election. But flowing from Christ, we also have adoption. Flowing from Christ, we have redemption. Flowing from Christ, we have... Uh, been revealed, Revelation. That's the big one, right? That doesn't make any sense in an order salutis kind of way. Um, Inheritance. Sealing. Right? So Paul is not trying to say this happens and then this happens and this happens and this happens. Instead, he's far more interested in locating all of our blessings from the Spirit in a person, in Jesus Christ. Yeah. So when he says we have, he has blessed us mm-hmm. in Christ, is that kind of a point in time he's brought us in union with Christ? Yeah, I think so. In a sense, oh, is, you're asking, is there a time in which God brought us into union with Christ? Well, I'm just kind of noticing. That's right, yeah. Where it seems like Paul's direction would be one to think of a time in eternity past. Yeah, I think. Are we blessed mm-hmm. from eternity past or from our conversion? So all, where do all of our blessings flow from? Where do all of our spiritual blessings flow from? Our union with Christ. In fact, the blessing of election itself flows from union with Christ. Do you see that in verse 4? What came first? Union with Christ or election, according to Ephesians 1.4? Look at it again. What comes first, union with Christ or election in Ephesians 1.4? We were chosen in him. Not chosen to be in him. We were chosen in him. In the same way that we were, we were said to be adopted through Christ Jesus or in Christ Jesus. We have redemption in Christ Jesus. We've obtained an inheritance in Christ Jesus. So in Ephesians 1.4, our election itself is sourced in our union with Christ. There's a mysterious union with Christ that believers have that all blessings from God flow from, even the blessing of election. Now, how that works temporally, how that works in eternity past for us to be united to Christ... I don't know. But I do know this. Our election is because of union with Christ. And it's a mind-boggling reality. But it only makes sense that our election is not based on ourselves. Our election is based on Christ and our pre-existing relationship with him. And I think there's some point in which we have to say the secret things belong to the Lord and the things he's revealed to us, he's 
revealed to, things he's revealed belong to us and our children, right? There's some secrets here that are impossible for us to fully mind the depths of. But every single blessing from God, including election itself, including predestination itself, comes from our union with Christ. There's no spiritual blessing we receive apart from union with Christ. Yeah, Sammy. I, th- I, think th- I think we have to under... If we read Ephesians 1, like we read Romans 8, we'll read it as like a line of things that happen. And if that happens, we have to like... Maybe, maybe we re- would read it like this. We're elected, and then after election comes predestination. And after predestination comes adoption. And then after adoption comes blah, 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 blah. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul's just saying Christ is where all of our spiritual blessings come from. And let's just explore that. Again, he's exploding in worship. Is what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, about the mentioning the, the predestination of Christ, mm-hmm. verse 16. Mm-hmm. He also mentions the predestination of Christ for his redemption. Yeah, he does. The there, that's exactly right. Romans 8. What verses? Uh, the one that you just Well, he does, those who he, he those who he, Foreknew he predestined, and those he predestined he also called, right? But he mentioned called twice. He mentioned justified twice, right? He's just saying, Paul's just saying that, like, one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. But that's not what he's doing in Ephesians 1. So leave with this, okay? Here's the last note of the day. Every spiritual blessing is yours, not given reluctantly, but given by a good and generous and gracious Father. And it's yours not because of your faithfulness, not because of anything you've done, but because you were mysteriously united to Christ before the world ever began. Somehow, God in Christ saw you and chose you personally, individually, not because you've done anything good or bad, but because you're in Christ. This goes beyond what Paul says in Romans 9, I think. It it takes a step further back, beyond God's choice, and says, what was behind God's choice? And I think Ephesians 1, 4, and 3 and 4 says, what was behind God's electing, sovereign electing choice was union with Christ, before time even began. That's what it says, right? He chose us in him. He didn't choose us to be in him. He chose us in him. And let that mystery sink deep into your soul. May it cause us to worship God because of it, just like Paul.